Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 36, That's Forkin' Teamwork, where we will be looking at Chapters 77 through 78 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of group dynamics. All right, you know the drill. Each week we'll be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for nameless of the week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week, or every other week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second, spoilers. We are more than halfway through the wise man's fear if by now... You are not aware that we are going to spoil, at the very least, the section we just read. Well, also a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. All right. Thank you for those disclaimers. So with that out of the way, it's time for the 45-second recap. It's my turn this week. So do you have a stopwatch ready? Surprisingly enough, I have my phone in this room. It doesn't mean that I have anything pulled up as a stopwatch. That's going to take a little bit. Okie dokie. Cherries are on the line. I think not. In three, two, one, go. Quoth and his band stop at the inn at Crossan, their feet covered in sand and their teeth in need of flossing. While Quoth fumbles with the affections of one of the local waitstaff, Martin gives directions on how to contain Daydan's boisterous laughs. After a night of rest, they're back on the road, putting Team Trust to the test and learning how to carry the load. Tempe and Daydan come to blows over a careless remark. Tempe wins without so much as lifting a toe, and Daydan treats it as a lark. They formulate a plan to deal with their quarry. Quo thinks they'll find their men and make them all sorry. Do you want the good news or the more fun news? Yes. If we did 30 seconds, you would have barely made it. So even more fun. That means no cherries. Sure. All right. Our first chapter in this passage is chapter 77, Pennysworth, which takes its name from the inn at Crossan. In this section, we've got just a few characters, Quoth, Martin, Daydan, Hespa, and Tempe, plus Lozine, or Lossie, who is one of the local serving girls at the inn. We have some other bit characters, but none of them are named. So a couple things that I saw, first of all, we see that there are a couple characters here, three really, who have a really hard time telling when other people are into them. One, we've got Quoth, obviously. Locine obviously takes a bit of a shine to him and Quoth is completely oblivious because she pretty much says exactly, I want to take you to town, boy. <laughs> I think that she's actually more friendly flirty like this is a customer i'm trying to weasel more money out i get better tips if i'm friendly and the fact of the matter is that even day dan says you have no shot no one has a shot she's friendly and kind of you know suggestive though <laughs> oh very 
there are a lot of people who do that kind of flirting specifically in customer service positions. It's like a social lubricant. It doesn't mean that they want you to hit on them. Although I think she does want some banter out of it. Banter's different. You know, case in point, I am asexual with a very dirty mind. And I love sexual banter. I'm not in any way repulsed. So that's good. I just don't particularly view it as something that I want or that I'm attracted to that way. So then there's also Daydan and Hespa. Oh, dear Lord. Like they're in that stage where they've known each other for so long. There's obvious attraction between them, but they don't know how to make that leap. To be fair, Martin says Dan clearly was into her before she showed interest in him. And now they're just being frustrating. Well, they're two people who are obviously attracted to each other, but they both think that the other person couldn't possibly be into them. I wonder who that's a mirror towards. Hmm. <laughs> yes, it is the Kvothe and Denna problem. That all being said, I can never, ever, ever tell if someone is being friendly to me or they're flirting. Same. And I think, like I say, part of it is because they have lived for so long in this friend and colleague territory, it's a comfortable groove. And they're like, well, what we've got is good. Why would the other person want to give that up? I mean, like you see that Daydan is pretty in awe of Hespa <laughs> and figures that there's no way that she could possibly reciprocate his feelings for her. One of the other things that we see here is Kvothe starting to deal with the fact that he has problematic allies. And I'm not necessarily meaning in the sense of, oh, this is your problematic fave, but he has people on his team that he isn't really sure how to deal with, and they don't always just play nice with one another. Or with him. Or with him, right. So... Initially, even the whole idea of going to an inn, he's hostile to, as Daydan is suggesting this. And part of it is that Kvothe is rightfully concerned about making sure that he spends the mayor's money wisely. He knows that they have to make it last for as long as they're out, and they don't know how long that's going to be. What they've also got is a group dynamic. And Kvothe, I think his instinct is to play high-handed, I'm the leader, so we do what I say. But we also see him starting to listen a little bit, both to Martin and also to Daydan. Also to change his approach. He's trying to avoid doing the things that will upset Daydan. He's not specifically trying to make Daydan happy because to make Daydan happy would be to just stay at the inn and pay for a room until the money runs out, not to mention drink and food. Daydan clearly doesn't want to be doing the mission that they are doing. He doesn't want to have anyone be an authority over him. He doesn't want to face the realities of a budget. And so there are a few ways I would have handled that. One is not be so tight with everything which is what Kvothe does. He's like, okay, I'll sweeten the pot just a little bit. Still doesn't make Daydan happy, but it gets him to stop complaining. 
The other option is to let Daydan be in charge of the money. One of those is a bad idea. Yes, but it could actually work. There is a hybrid of that. Show Daydan physically how much money you have and ask him to be the one in charge of lowering prices, like haggling. Except Foth views himself as the master at haggling, the master at making sure that they get the best deal. He takes pride in that, and I don't think he'd let that go. Probably not. I think the key here, though, more than anything else, is he actually makes Daydan feel like his concerns have been heard and noted and taken into consideration. Daydan may not be happy with the outcome or with the decision, but at least he feels like his opinion carried some weight. There is an idea about management that if you can't make everyone happy, you should make everyone a little unhappy, not make some people very happy and other people pissed. But key to that is also understanding the roots of the concerns, because there's going to be cases where people have needs that are both stated and unstated. And Daydan has needs and wants, some of them that he is open about, others not so much. And by Kvothe at least listening to him and talking to him about what the plan is, he's acknowledging that Daydan is a whole person whose wants and needs do get taken into consideration, even if things don't always go exactly the way Daydan would want. So after handling Daydan like that, and Daydan getting to have a little autonomy and go off on his own, Martin comes over and talks to Kvothe and says specifically, you did well. I think that that's a lovely thing to hear, especially from someone that you view as an authority. I've had a similar situation where while at work, technically I was the lead of my department because I was the only person in my department, having to justify myself and my UI decisions and UX decisions that I was making to the leads in the art department and the design department in front of the producer. And someone just kept scope creeping. I think it was our designer. Just kept increasing, what if we did this and that and this and this? And what if we, and I'm like, it's a phone game. Phones are small. Your audience is typically going to be women between the ages of like 25 and 60. You get to the higher end of that, can't see the phone very well. Do not keep making me make this font smaller. Do not keep making me squish more stuff that is confusing onto this screen. No. And after I stood up and said no, my producer nudged me a little bit and goes, you handled that well. It's a good feeling. It is a good feeling. Of course, she didn't say that in the earshot of the people I was saying no to. But it was nice to have that little conspiratorial, you did well. I think this is also Martin showing that he's actually the leader of this group. Yes. He is mentoring Kvothe subtly and in a way that Kvothe will take. And part of it is because Martin doesn't lecture Kvothe. Like, we know that Kvothe does not do well with people lecturing him or dictating what to do. In this case, he's... Just saying, here's some insight. Here's what you did well. I think you handled it smartly. And then 
Quoth basks in that praise. It means so much to him to have someone that he looks up to give him a compliment. On top of this, now he wants to continue making Martin proud. So he's going to put more effort into not pissing off Daydan. Well, not only that, like, we look at Quoth, if we look at him psychologically, this is someone who, as smart as he is, is starved for validation. This is someone who, ever since his parents passed, he hasn't really had a parental figure. And he's been desperate for someone to nurture him and mentor him. Someone to say that you're smart, you're worthwhile, you're valid. He wants that at certain points to be Elodin, and Elodin steadfastly refuses to be that comforting parental figure. Yeah. Well, and at the same time, you look at why he responds so well to Master Kilvin, because Kilvin gives him that validation and praise that he's needed for all of his life. Also why he's seeking validation from Lauren. He values the books. He values the knowledge. He values all of that. And he just wants Lauren not to hate him. Yeah. So I can see that Martin is a figure who really is speaking to a deep need that Quoth has. And I'm not saying this in a judgmental way at all. I think it's actually kind of beautiful that Quoth is finding some of what he needs here in this little weird band. It's kind of an island of misfit toys, but it works. And I think there's something about this that is going to be very beneficial to Quoth becoming an actual leader. Like he's clearly learning on the job, but we can see some growth even between now and the prior chapter. Right. I think he's more willing to open his ears up. Now, you did mention Losi, and I want to mention one little thing before we move on. I know we're going more towards the psychological and the character development and all of the stuff, but I still find some of the details so fascinating. She is described as, I looked up to see a woman's face and well-advertised bosom framed by a tumble of bright red curls. Her skin was white as cream with just the barest hint of freckle. Her lips were a pale, dangerous pink and her eyes a bright, dangerous green. Red hair, green eyes. You think there's some common ancestor? I think that there might be some relation, which would make that kind of ooky. But I think we'd be remiss to ignore that. Well, and it's also worth noting that both neither of his parents have the same hair and eye coloration that he does. Also true. So something to keep in mind. Like were Quoth's parents actually Quoth's biological parents because they were definitely his parents. Absolutely. We're talking here strictly genetics. Yes. Another thing that caught my eye about some of Quoth's growth here, I can't say that five times fast, is he sees Daydan starting to loudly talk about what's going on. Like, this scene reminds me of Frodo listening as... Is it Pippin or Mary? It's Pippin. It's Pippin. 
just loudly telling the barkeep what exactly they're there to do. It's just like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, stop. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. And he actually handles it with a little bit more subtlety than I think he necessarily would want to by first instinct. First off, I'm not sure if he signaled to Martin or if Martin just took care of it and said, I'm going to go get him. I'm going to make him stop now. And then he studiously isn't watching Daydan come over to his table because he doesn't want Daydan to think that it's all just an order because Daydan does not deal well with being told what to do by this young little upstart. There's a little bit of in about three paragraphs, maybe two paragraphs, character development for Tempe as Quoth watches him intensely watching the Fiddler. And we know from future knowledge that he's just very curious about music because music is not something that he is culturally allowed to enjoy, shall we say. But then he also very quickly picks up a girl in the bar. Presumably they go off and have sex somewhere. I think part of it is that for Tempe, because the Adem culture, again, as we will know in the future, values things like physical touch differently and things like sexual intimacy differently than contemporary society as it's presented for the rest of Kvothe's world. So for Tempe, touch and physical intimacy is a lot easier for him than verbal intimacy, as we'll see. But then Dedan just tonal shifts, sits down, starts off very angry and says, you better not be telling me blah, 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 blah. And Quoth's internal dialogue is, I was gonna say exactly that. Clearly he knows. New tactic. And this is, I think, where Quoth is smart. When you're leading groups, it's not uncommon to have very opinionated group members who will loudly tell you what ought to be done and they don't like being told what to do. And so kind of an armchair quarterback. Yeah, a little bit. You know, they've got all of the knowledge about how something ought to be done. And they're trying to tell everybody else how to do their job or to get out of their way or what have you. And oftentimes the instinct might be to respond with an order or just a countermanding. Stop it. Stop sharing your opinion. Do something different. Don't do this. Do that. Give orders. Fall in line. But that typically only just breeds resentment. What Quoth does, and I think this is the smart thing, is he actually enlists his enthusiastic opinion haver, in this case Daydan, for assistance. He says, hey, I'm worried that Hespa might be spilling secrets. If Daydan had half a freaking brain, he'd realize that this is a complete lie. Also, I don't like throwing the one woman in the group under the bus. Not a fan of that part myself, but something as simple as saying, hey, I'm worried that people might get the wrong idea about what we're out to do and we've got to keep what we're doing under wraps. Can you help us make sure that we all keep it tight, keep it quiet, you know? And at this point, what he's doing is he's saying, instead of you need to do what I tell you to do, 
what he is saying is, I am asking you to help me accomplish our goals because I think that you're competent. And that's a useful tactic for bringing someone like this on side. I've, you know, in my other life, when I am not hosting podcasts, you know, I work as an incident manager. And part of that is oftentimes dealing with executive backseat drivers. These are people who come in, they've got strong opinions for how things ought to be done. They don't necessarily know what exactly is going on and what the engineering resources are actually doing, but they've got opinions. And so sometimes really what they're looking for is to feel like they're being useful. And so you have to find a way to use that enthusiasm to your advantage. So you can come in and say to these guys, hey, and it is almost always guys. Sometimes it's women, but more often than not guys. You have to say, hey, I appreciate your enthusiasm and thank you for wanting to help out with this and caring so much about this issue that we're dealing with. Here's how you can help me. Right now, I'm trying to get a response from some team. Do you think you could maybe help me get a response back from them? Uh, do you have any contacts that we might be able to leverage to get an answer more quickly? And then they'll go out and grab whoever you need. <laughs> and meanwhile, you can get to the busy work of actually fixing the problem. And that takes a little bit of subtlety. It takes a little bit of vulnerability because your obvious instinct when someone comes in with their hackles up, when someone comes in hot like that, is to bristle your defenses and present resistance. To match like with like. And sometimes you gotta step back and say, okay, let's start by absorbing some of that instead of trying to push it back. The term you're looking for, I think, is de-escalate. Exactly. You're trying to listen to what they really need and then make them feel validated. And I think that was a smart move there. Daydan gets the message that, oh, he messed up, but he appreciates that he was able to save face. Because we recognize here that Daydan is a proud person. He does not like being rebuked. And I think he and Quoth have that in common. I do agree with you. There is a clear mirror, if I'm looking at this, between the two. Quoth and Daydan are both quite proud. They're both very independent. They both value their own autonomy. They don't like being told what to do, and they don't like being made to feel like idiots. After this, Quoth engages Daydan in conversation about one of Daydan's apparent favorite subjects, the physical attributes of women. Mostly he's just like, okay, that girl over there, what's her name? And then Daydan just kind of turns into grade A misogynist. And that's where I'm leaving that. But after Daydan gets up, leaves, goes and does what or whoever he wants. Martin leans over and is like, good job. Again. <laughs> and Quoth is like, well, at least I have an appreciative audience. <laughs> Next chapter, Quoth has some schadenfreude. Yes. Another Road, Another Forest is really a small little one-act play. We just have Quoth, Martin, Hespa, Daydan and Tempe are only players. There's no external characters. And it's really just a series of conversations. 
This really brought to mind the four stages of group building. I've probably talked about this before on the podcast, but there is a school of thought around team building that teams go through four main stages, forming, norming, storming, and performing. I seem to recall this, yes. So the first stage forming is where the group is unfamiliar with one another and doesn't really know how to speak to one another. They don't know who the other people are, what they can do or anything like that. What we saw at the pennies worth is sort of the norming stage where they're starting to grow used to one another's unique quirks and to accept them. Morale tends to be pretty high and people get fairly optimistic. The task seems achievable. We also are going to see in this chapter a shift to the storming stage. This is where the group is familiar enough that they stop trying to be nice to one another and oftentimes with volatile consequences. Conflicts that people had been avoiding come to the surface and they can be potentially destructive if left unaddressed or unresolved. And then you have performing and this is where the group learns how to resolve the conflicts that were exposed in the storming phase and then their differences serve to strengthen the group, not tear it apart. Now, any group that's together for long enough will go at least through the storming phase. It's easy to look at that and say, oh, that's the bad phase. We want to avoid that. But you can't. Also, I don't think that there is a bad phase. I think that that's an inevitable phase. Also, I think it's the most constructive phase if you can let it be. Yes. While you're in that storming phase, things can actually get done really effectively because people stop trying to be nice. They're more willing to lean into their strengths. And sometimes the conflict, if addressed appropriately, can actually yield stronger bonds and innovative solutions that otherwise nobody would have thought to because the people were so busy trying to be nice to one another. But no tempest is stable for long <laughs> and you have to eventually emerge out the other side. The fight between Tempe and Daydan really is an example of this conflict occurring and then the two parties learning to actually say their piece and move forward. Before we get to that, I'd say that we've got the storm brewing at least from Quoth's description, starting in the morning. Quoth is kind of pleased to see Daydan suffering from a hangover. He knows what it feels like. He's being a little self-righteous in that he didn't drink enough to wake up with a head full of bees. And he's just like, well, who's the responsible one now? Who's the adult now? And then he starts talking about everybody's quirks. I don't particularly like the description. Again, Hespa seems to be getting short shrift a lot. <sighs> There's some discussion about her being lazy. There's some things that I'm like, you know, she's probably worked and lived the mercenary life around enough dudes that expected her to be their mommy that she has said, F all of y'all, I'm not doing anything anything to clean up after you, to make you mind your tasks, to direct you. You're not going to listen to me and you're just going to expect me to be your maid. Nope. Nope. Not doing it. No. 
It may also be, in addition to that, <laughs> the fact that none of that stuff is really the stuff she's interested in. Like, there's a reason I don't like to go camping. Camping is just doing chores outside to me, and I'm sorry, but I don't like doing chores. I gotta say, a lot of your opinion about camping has to do with the way your parents camp and the fact that your mom, I don't think, can help herself from being the person who is constantly of the mindset that if we just clean up after ourselves and do all of our chores now, we'll be able to enjoy ourselves later and then later never actually arrives. Yeah, because there will always be more chores exposed by the chores that you have just done. We have talked with one of your coworkers who really, really enjoys camping and thinks that your reasoning for not liking camping is kind of nuts. When I explained what camping was like for me growing up, suddenly he realized, well, now I see exactly why you hate camping. If that was camping for me, I would hate it too. <laughs> right. But what I mean, it, not necessarily that your reason for disliking camping is nuts. Maybe I meant that in a different way. What I kind of meant is his version of camping has no resemblance to your version of camping. And so therefore he finds it relaxing because he does something completely different than what you did growing up. This is true. So another thing that I noticed here is one of the things that's holding Foth back as a leader is he's not able to be vulnerable with his teammates. So when he's given the opportunity to share some of his background with the group, all he comes up with is knowing things is what I do and what in the world makes you think I grew up in a city. Right. He never actually says where he grew up. I can tell you exactly why the group thinks that he grew up in a city. Because he arrived in finery to go spend a month in the woods. Yeah, he looks like the arch city slicker. He looks like a dandy. Yeah, which is the city slicker. Maybe for this time, yeah. Like, he definitely looks like he's someone who's an urban cosmopolitan. Like, he shows up with a freaking loot. But it's not, like, a really, really nice loot. He looks like a bard. And not, like, a traveling bard. He looks like a court bard. Yeah. All it really does is just underscore that Quoth can't bring himself to let people know him. He's afraid that if they got to know the real him, that they wouldn't like him, that they wouldn't respect him. Again, he would get a lot further by just explaining rather than putting his defenses up and saying, you don't know me. Okay, we'll give them an opportunity to know you, dude. He's got these opportunities to win respect and trust, and he could do that if he showed a little bit of vulnerability, but instead he leans into playing the mysterious arcanist card. And all that does is it makes his coworkers fear him. He says he misjudged just how superstitious the people of Vent are regarding arcane magics. He doesn't try to put himself in their shoes. He just keeps stumbling through his interactions with no empathy. Yeah. Well, and he thinks, oh, yeah, my fault was that I misjudged their superstition. But instead, when he's talking about, well, this is what will happen if they take me, I'll just kill them all. 
In what world isn't that a frightening response? If you could kill all of them, what are you going to do to us? Yeah. And all of that really just kind of underscores that he does not want to be one of the group. He does not want to be vulnerable to them. We have skipped a whole bunch. Let's go back and fill in the gaps. Okay. So when you talk about what happens if they capture you, we haven't discussed and really explained what that interaction was referencing. Quoth, again, with being the leader and the smart one, has to have a conversation with Dedan, Hespa, Tempe, and Martin about how do we track people through what is essentially 400 square miles of forest. Quoth has no idea. Quoth has absolutely no idea. He fancies himself as someone who really understands people, but then he can't interact with them very well. Quoth thinks that he understands people because he can manipulate them, not because he really empathizes with people or sees things from their points of view. He thinks he knows what people are thinking. He thinks he can read their minds. He can't, but he thinks that based off of stereotypical patterns of what this role of a person would normally do, that he can predict what other people would do. And therefore, his whole shtick is manipulating people into doing the thing that they think they want to do, but is something that he actually wants them to do. Part of it is I think Kvothe has great big main character energy. But going back to what I was talking about in terms of like events, he has a conversation with his teammates about what happens if in this search of the 400 square miles, which I think some of his points are very smart, look for trails that are very clearly human made and not animal made. Look for signs of people walking in this desolate part of the King's Road. But if you get captured, play it smart. Try to befriend the people who are capturing you. They'll expect you to leave on the first night if they think you're stupid. They'll expect you to leave on the second night if they think you're smart. Wait till the third night, set their shirt on fire, and then hightail it the fork out of there. I think part of that is Kvothe is also still too attached to the storybook logic of threes. I think he overestimates just how easy it'll be to gain the trust of bandits. He seems to approach the whole thing the way you approach one of those dead reckoning problems that you see in all of the interviews that supposedly used to happen, right? Like, how many piano tuners are there in the city of Chicago? Right. He's showing some of his work there and some of his thought processes. Not all of it inherently wrong or invalid, but also definitely not necessarily coming from a place of knowledge. Most of what he's saying sounds smart because he probably learned it from plays. Very much storybook, very much writerly, if that's a word. Some clever author reduced nuance to that. And that's what he's picking up on. And that's what he's using as his basis of great knowledge. It's like me trying to write a heist thriller. I've just read a whole bunch of heist thrillers. I have not actually done anything even remotely approaching anything. (laughs) 
other than going to escape rooms. Yeah, and even then, not doing great at escape rooms. I'm going to tell on myself here. I am not great in escape rooms. Me neither. But a lot of this is not really his forte. Other little vignettes that happen. We're totally doing this out of order. The conflict between Daydan and Tempe. Daydan is very loud. He's very boisterous. He would annoy the ever-loving shirt out of me. And Tempe, I think, some of it's cultural and some of it's just personal. He's not quiet because he's stupid. And he very strongly believes that quiet does not mean stupid. And it's telling that every single other person here seems to have the opinion that if you don't speak, you're dumb. And then Quoth realizes that Tempe probably doesn't speak a turn fluently. He speaks it well enough, but he doesn't speak it fluently. So we've got Daydan and Tempe kind of coming to blows in a way that ultimately results in them having a stronger understanding of one another and works out in everybody's favor. Daydan loudly complains and doesn't understand the value that Tempe brings to the group. And Tempe just shows him. And it shuts Dedan up because now he knows that in a fight, he'd lose. And also, if they're in a fight with someone else, this is a guy he wants on his side. Absolutely. So then we've got after the fight, both having a discussion with Tempe about how wearing blood red in the forest is more like a beacon than camouflage. But then they get to have more conversation where... Again, as someone who is neurodivergent and has interacted with more people, I think, who are neurodivergent, some autistic people who have hard times looking people in the face when they converse, I both understand Kvothe's position of, oh my goodness, it is so annoying when he doesn't look at me, but also want to tell Kvothe to Stufu because I know for me... Watching someone's face doesn't mean that I am listening more intently than if I were to have my eyes go somewhere else. What Quoth is really looking for is some way to get an acknowledgement that something is understood. Also, Quoth craves attention and attentiveness. Yes, Quoth needs to be the center of attention. Again, this is tied into his psychology and his upbringing. Like he grew up in a home where people were very attentive to him all the time. Like that's what his mother and father and the rest of his family gave him. He was the only kid. Yep. He was the young prodigy. This is what he had with Abinthe. This is what he had with all of the members of his troop. This was what he was nurtured with. And then when all of that was taken away from him, he spent years starving for it. So that need for attention doesn't go away. And in fact, it's only gotten stronger because it's been unmet for so long. And he does have a sense of curiosity about Tempe. He wants to understand what's going on in Tempe's culture. And I think it really helps him when he actually makes the connection to his efforts to learn Siaru. When he realizes that, he realizes, oh, well, 
Tempe probably isn't expressing himself quite as well as he would like because this isn't his first language. And that he is doing this at all is actually a mark of great intelligence. I gotta say, we have this problem as a society with people who don't know how to speak English fluently. Despite the fact that it is likely somebody's second, maybe third, maybe fourth language. And I'd challenge people to realize that being able to get your point across in a language that you did not grow up with is for one thing, very, very difficult. And for another thing, should be worthy of some compassion from the people you're trying to communicate with. I think what's useful here is Quoth starts trying to talk to Tempe a little more compassionately. And instead of, again, trying to order Tempe to do something, which we don't know how that's going to go, he doesn't know how that's going to go, he instead says, okay, so here's what we need to do. How can you help me do this? How can we make it so that you don't stand out? Instead of telling Tempe what to do, he asks Tempe what they're going to do. So he's giving Tempe agency in this. I was about to mention that the moment that you acknowledge and encourage the other person's agency is the moment you get to win them. And when he's able to frame it as right now, we are not fighting people, we are hunting people, Tempe realizes, oh, I have clothes for that. <laughs> and while Quoth is grateful that this worked, he doesn't really get the distinction between hunting and fighting. There's other cultural differences and quirks that show up that I would like to mention regarding Tempe's culture. First off, for someone who is dead set on finding mythical people who are storybook creatures or storybook legends, whatever, when his main quest is being written off as being storybook, as a derogative, as a pejorative, it's kind of rich that he's like, well, the Luthani is clearly something that's just a storybook tale. Like, it's not real. That's not a real thing. Oh my goodness, Quoth. I want to just, like, flick you on the head and tell you you're an idiot. So there's that. There's also, after Daydan and Tempe have their fight, Daydan looks at Tempe and goes, you fight like a woman, as though that's a bad thing. Except Tempe is like, thank you. I appreciate that. I do fight like a woman. And they're talking past one another. We know what he means. The women of his culture, super bad. Ashes. Also, let's not forget, Hespa's in the camp too. Right? Audible eye roll. Anyway, where does this end? So it ends when the group asks Quoth, so what are you going to say when they catch you? Because we don't have magic to track you down. And there's no guarantee that we'll be able to find your path in three days. I think that's where Quoth makes a big blunder. And once he makes the blunder, he leans into it. Yeah, like he really comes across as someone who's so intent on seeming dangerous. He just ends up further distancing himself from his group. And to admit otherwise is to admit a vulnerability that he doesn't want to show. Oh no, I said that wrong. I didn't mean it that way. This is what I meant. It was a joke. It could have gone a long way towards 
diffusing the situation, admitting, oops, I did something wrong. I said something wrong. I didn't mean that the way it came across. It's just a better show of strength than clamming up and playing along with the thing that you messed up on. Quoth is convinced that if he shows any weakness, they will disrespect him. But now they're afraid of him. It comes down to when you admit weakness, other people view you as stronger than if you were to just make a mistake and not admit it. Yeah. Now they're looking at him as someone who they can't trust. And that's a wonderful note to leave on. We're going to move on to the Fernemos. Yep. So it's your turn this week. Who'd you pick? was kind of tied between Tempe and Martin. Tempe because he says quiet is not dumb. And I think each one of the group members can find a way to kind of that puzzle piece for a different group member to show them how they respect the other group member and how the other group member can respect them. And Tempe kind of infers that the only way to get Daydan to listen to him and to stop viewing him as a simpleton is to prove his worth in the way that Daydan understands, which is by fighting. But I think I like Martin better because Martin continues to be a good leader in reality without being leader by title. I think that there is a quiet, ingenious air of authority that comes from just being knowledgeable and understanding and empathetic and having a leader for the leader, having a mentor for the inexperienced leader by title can do wonders for the group. Everyone's going to Quoth with their problems and Quoth is relying on Martin to validate his strategies for fixing them. I can see that. Quoth learns that he can trust Martin's counsel and that Martin will gently correct him on his assumptions without judgment. It's kind of like the position of Hand of the King. A little bit, yeah. Where if we think about the Mad King... In Game of Thrones, Ares, yeah? Yeah. The Mad King Ares. His hand was Tywin Lannister. And while Tywin is an evil bastard, at least when it comes to his personality, he's ruthless and he's self-serving. He also recognizes that doing what's best for the realm is very much self-serving. As in, if the realm falls apart, his life just goes to shirt. It's also worth pointing out here that the Tywin Lannister that we meet by the time of A Game of Thrones is not the same as the Tywin Lannister that served as the Hand of the King. He had a personality shift that happened after his wife passed and also after he was expelled from court. That'll do it. But I would say that when you look into his history, he ran the realm. He was the council that helped the king and more likely the people that reported to the king do things in service of the realm. Yeah, it's worth noting that when Tywin was hand, they went through a long winter where even in spite of that, all of the small folk had food on the table. No one starved because while he was asking for heavy tithes, 
all of those tithes of crops and everything were specifically meant to be preserved and saved for the winter so that they could then be distributed out to the greater populace rather than just to enrich the wealthy. No one starved because of that. Everyone had food on the table and the realm was able to prosper even in lean times. But so I think having someone as a council, even beyond the title of leader, is a really genius move. And it seems like that's the position that Martin has put himself in on purpose. Absolutely. He's handled it well. Good call. Thank you. Now it's time for the interesting fact of the week. So for my turn, we're going to be talking about Europa. I'm not talking about the second tier European conference competition in soccer. I'm talking about the moon of Jupiter. Ever since I was a kid reading Arthur C. Clarke's Odyssey books, in particular 2010 Odyssey 2, which caps off with star child Dave Bowman's cryptic words, all these words are yours except for Europa, never go there. I've been fascinated by the prospect of extraterrestrial life under the ice of Europa, the sixth moon of Jupiter. So this past week, NASA scientists got one of their closest looks at the smallest of Jupiter's Galilean moons during a flyby from the Juno spacecraft. It's very early in the process, but by all indications, Juno's flyby of Europa was a great success, said Scott Bolton, Juno principal investigator from the Southwest Research Institute in San Antonio, Texas, in a NASA release. This first picture is just a glimpse of the remarkable new science to come from Juno's entire suite of instruments and sensors that acquired data as we skimmed over the moon's icy crust. Europa is slightly smaller than Earth's moon and of keen scientific interest. Its surface is a frozen wasteland miles thick, but scientists think that a salty ocean lies beneath its surface. If that's true, then Europa's subsurface would be a great place for life to hide out. Just as the Perseverance rover on Mars is scouring a dried up river delta for signs of fossil life, so too does NASA think Europa is worth investigating. Juno picked out surface features like rugged terrain and possible impact craters in its two hour window zipping past Europa. Candy Hansen, a co-investigator on Juno at the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson said in a NASA release that the images will be compared to images of the moon taken on a previous mission, Galileo in 2000. They can then investigate whether any features of Europa's surface have changed in that time. Hansen added that the recent images will help replace older, lower resolution images of Europa's surface. And these will then pave the way for NASA's Europa Clipper mission. That spacecraft is set to launch in 2024 and arrive at Europa in 2030. It will investigate the moon's surface, atmosphere, and most intriguingly, its interior. So studying that interior will help scientists understand the structure of Europa's ice beneath the crust, as well as where liquid water may lie beneath the surface. Ultimately, the Europa Clipper will give NASA scientists a gist for the planet's habitability in the agency's larger search for life beyond Earth. And I, for one, am really excited if we find extraterrestrial life in our own solar system and not even just evidence of extinct life. I think it's really interesting to see what we find. I'm not anticipating anything like little green men or anything like that. But if it's something as simple as algae or seaweed, that tells us a whole lot. And that's stuff that we haven't been able to find anywhere else. And the conditions on Europa are unique in terms of like the temperature and they could tell us a lot about how life can adapt to different conditions. So I think that's pretty cool. I think that the entire idea of 
sending a six-year-long mission and just hoping the math was right. I mean, chances were very, very, very high that the math will be right, but that everything will just work the way it's predicted to work. And then the possibilities of whatever data we get back. The unknown is just so exciting to me. It's why I like undersea voyages and it's why I like outer space voyages. People question the amount of money being spent on things to go search for new life and new civilizations outside of our little planet. The thing is, I think missions like this do good on a global scale in ways that using that money to help a localized community might not be as global. I think that it's also driving scientific research and driving that interest in science and STEM will help us systematically improve other parts of life and infrastructure and medical science and what have you. Yeah, I think that it tends to fall into the category of a long tail of return on investment. So the benefits that we see from space travel are things that we may not directly experience worldwide for a few decades, but we wouldn't get them any other way. And while I think that it's easy to fall into the critique of, well, why aren't you making things better on Earth? as if these things are truly in opposition to one another. I think it's also worth pointing out that there are other areas where money could be moved away from and put into domestic programs and immediate aid efforts and things like that. It doesn't have to be an either or. And I think that the two are oftentimes pitted against one another by people who would rather have bloated defense budgets. Remember who the real enemy is. Yep. All right. Is it my turn? It is your turn for thing of the week. Okay. My recommendation is if you are a crafter, think about making your way through some of your old craft supplies or just be willing to let some of them go if they are no longer useful to you. I have been carrying around a collection of yarn scraps because I know how to crochet decently and I've made a few projects and you never ever ever have just the exact amount that you need. You'll always wind up with either a little bit more or a little too little of it and you have to go get more and then you wind up with a lot more than you need. And right now, spoilers if your sister's listening, but I don't think that she is or any other family member, but whatever. I am currently going through my yarn collection and trying to use up as many of the little scraps from the ends of projects as I can to make a, we're gonna call it either a scrap blanket or a snowflake blanket because I'm making hexagons and every single one of them is unique like a snowflake or we're gonna call it like a sensory blanket because all of the different textures of yarn are going to be kind of a fun thing for a two-year-old to put their hand on and feel something different. And it's something I would have enjoyed as a kid. It's going to look mismatched and weird, which is 
perfectly fine, I think, for a little one. But the point is, I got a little bit anxious about using up something that I had bought for a baby blanket 20 years ago. I went on to a Facebook group that I'm part of that is catering to both ADHD and crafting and asked for validation. And I got so many responses that either said, I would have loved that when I was a kid. My kid would love that. I think that that is a great idea. That is a genius way to use up all of your yarn. And I'd say that I have some craft supplies in my collection that could use either revisiting to make sure that they are still useful, like some paint pens that might be dried up, some markers that might be dried up, or just something that is worth looking at and saying, will I legitimately ever want to use this? If not, can I donate it to somebody that would? If you don't feel good about using up your craft supplies on a random project that you didn't intend to make, or if you don't feel good about maybe throwing some of them away, there are places like schools and nursing homes that will take donations of craft supplies for their residents or students. And I know that teachers are most definitely at a financial disadvantage for making sure their kids have enough supplies. If you have things around your home that are not making you happy to keep a hold of, there are great places that would take them. But one of the things that stuck with me is someone telling me, hey, I know you're a little anxious about using up stuff that you've held on to for this long. But if you think about it, the project you're making now is a collection of memories. It's a collection of, oh yeah, I used this yarn to make my nephew a baby blanket 20 years ago. Or, oh, I remember this yarn. I got this yarn so that I could make my friend a scarf. Or I made a little omigurumi elephant for my niece out of this one. And I wound up with a decent sized ball of yarn left over. How about I use that to help make her a baby blanket or a sensory blanket because she's two. It's a little bit different than a baby blanket, but going through all the memories and as she grows up, I can tell her about each one of those projects. I can FaceTime with her and say, you remember that elephant? I used the same thing for its hat in this square over here or my little nephew who is a lot older than you. I made him a blanket and this is the same yarn I used for him. And it's something special to connect me with my niece. And it gets rid of a whole ton of extra yarn. Yeah, we've got a lot. On top of that, it inspired me to finish a scarf that was 98% finished for the last like three years. I got it done and I'm giving it to someone. And it's also going out of the house. It feels really good. I'm proud of you. Thank you. All right. So I think that means it's about time for us to cover our seven words. You had the books this time. What were your choices? We didn't have a really good selection of choices in this section. A lot of them are just kind of mediocre. I thought about the kind of poetic one that says a long day and a long road. I thought about one that was, of course, this is true, quoth. Perhaps I was young and woefully inexperienced. Eh. There's funny things that don't have context and would be weird on the Instagram. It's like, but he has to know by now. Or, 
A guilty look flashed across his face. None of these are really inspiring me. One that made me kind of laugh. I can't believe I'm defending tax collectors. Also, no context could be funny. But the one I'm actually choosing is I shouldn't have laughed, but I did. Yeah, that'll work. And now it is your turn for seven words from life. So this one is, again, a little on the flippant side, but it is never share any info with the DM. <laughs> for context, we are going to be starting up a D&D campaign again. Oh, I'm so happy. Will's going to run it. And we've got some of your friends from work. And the thing I think that started this off was you saying something along the lines of, if you don't have dice, I'm willing to let you borrow some of mine. And I immediately was like, no, 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 no. If you need dice, I'll share with you. Do not borrow dice from the DM. Do not, do not, do not. And then you put out there, hey, if y'all want to share any of your character concepts with everybody, feel free to put it on the chat. And then another of our players saying, no, do not share information with the DM. Uh, we'll see about that. <laughs> I trust you. I don't trust your dice. They're all player killers, but I trust you. Well, good. Thank you. You're welcome. Also, apologies if there is a weird high-pitched buzzing noise and I couldn't get rid of it through the noise reduction. Our neighbors apparently have decided to shop back their garage right now. Well, with that, I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 79 through 80 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of imperfect instructors. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get things like bonus episodes about the Sandman. Also, I recently redid our tier structures a little bit, and things now either cost less or are kind of on hiatus or other such things, and it would behoove you to go and look at what we've got available if you would like to help us out in making this wonderful project that we've enjoyed doing for the last, oh my goodness, almost three years. And also we would appreciate any feedback. If you've got any suggestions for how we can make the Patreon have more value to you, please let us know. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Okie dokie, artichokey. Okie dokie.